You're listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. That the letter is addressing um, to these Christians in Rome. Also, I wanted to mention that in Rome, uh, in Romans, the, there's four, there's like four uh series, I guess, four things that he's teaching, Paul goes into. First is wrath, and we talked about that last week. Romans chapter 1 talks about God's wrath, and it's because God loves us so much. He knows that sin hurts us. He hurts our families. He hurts individuals. Sin hurts individuals. It hurts the community. So God addresses that, and he doesn't stop there. Also, Romans chapter 2 is about God's wrath. But then he talks about grace, and he talks about the will, his will, and then he goes into the purpose that we have in him. So today we're going to continue, and we're going to, um, with the letter that is written by Paul, is so important. It's not an easy letter to read, but it's truly critical. And I want to say this, this letter, if we don't get, if we don't understand what Paul is writing in Romans chapter 2, then we really don't understand God. And I'm going to go so far as to say if we don't get what Romans 2 is saying, then the church, it really cannot be a safe place. So in chapter 1, we saw that Paul lists all the sins of, um, that were happening in the Greek culture, and we're familiar with all those things as well. And he, and he goes on and on, and he, all the things that he can think of, he lists about all these sins. And so what happens in chapter 2, immediately Paul is addressing what perhaps the, the Jewish Christians, Roman Jewish Christians are thinking, and he immediately addresses that and he, because they're, he's thinking, yeah, Paul, you get them. Those are awful people. They're doing terrible things. They're a disaster. They're just really awful people. And immediately Paul addresses that. We're going to talk about that this morning. I want to say this, though. I love church. I really do. I love church. I love the church. I grew up in a small Pentecostal church, and I was dedicated as a child. I was baptized in the church. I went to Sunday school. I went to youth group, and we served. Our family served. We gave. We loved church, and we loved our pastor. And many of you did, had the same experience I did, and um, it was the old-time religion. But if I'm going to be honest, the, it was a different culture that I grew up in. And I don't think there was any malice or anything like that, but there was a lot of room to grow. Because there was a, there was a lot of love, but there was also this legalistic thinking in many ways. There were lots of do's and don'ts. In order to be right with God, there was a lot of things that we weren't supposed to do. And you had to wear your, you know, skirt a certain length, and you had to do this, and you had to do that. And my mother, who grew up in even, even in a more restrictive home and church, she would talk about all the things she grew up with. She couldn't go to a movie. She couldn't go roller skating. She couldn't play cards because those were all forbidden. And, you know, girls couldn't wear pants. So there were a lot of things that you couldn't do in order to be right with God. 
When, uh, this week, as I was preparing this, I was listening to the song, Old Time Religion. Um, I did pick the rendition by Dolly Parton. And, um, and it's a great song, but one of the stances, one of the first stances in that song says, it makes you love everybody. And I had to stop and think about that because I thought, you know, growing up makes you love everybody as long as they look like me, as long as they do what I think they should do, and they act like me, then it makes me love it, love them. And the Roman Jewish Christians believe that. And this is what Paul is addressing. But let's just step back a moment and give a little pause here and check our own hearts. Because this is not something that is just unique, what happened many, many years ago. It's what can happen in the church today. So old-time religion is a good religion if it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, because the gospel never changes. And Paul is talking about that gospel, and it really does, if we get it, it really does make us love everybody. So in Romans chapter 1, he talks about, you know, he's listing all these sins, and, and um, so these are unchurched, unbelievers, people who, who are really against the church and have nothing, have nothing to do with. They, they don't want to have anything to do with the church. And so that's what's happening at the end of chapter 1. But chapter 2 is about church people. So we need to be careful. Because it talks about how they keep the law. But who can keep the whole law? No one can. Who sins? We all sin. And who does God love? He loves everybody. Paul is trying to rescue the Jewish Christians from judgment and comparison. So he's addressing elitism. The Jews thought, since I'm a descendant of Abraham, I have special status. I have diplomatic immunity. And he's saying, no, you don't have automatic a stamp of approval just because you're Jewish. And you learn the law. And when I talk about the law, I really want to say this because, I mean, we hear it all the time, the law, the law, the law. What does that mean, especially in Scripture? It's really quite simple. It's the Ten Commandments. It's also all the instructions and ordinances that God gave the Israelites in Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, you know, the Old Testament about if you do these things, you're going to be blessed. If you do these things, you'll prosper. If you do these things, you'll be healthy. So when we talk about the law, that's what we're talking about. And the law is good. It's just not what saves us. In Romans 2, it says that God doesn't show favoritism. Both Jews and Gentiles are subject to God's judgment. And both Jews and Gentiles are subject to God's grace. Now, Gentiles, again, Unless you are Jewish in this room right now, you're a Gentile. I'm a Gentile. God, um, so Paul is addressing this, that he shows no favoritism, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. The Jewish person or the religious person may think that he's saved because he has the law. But has he kept it? The Gentiles, even though he, they don't have the law, but they have the conscience to be right with God. 
Again, I, I have to quote Eugene Peterson because he says this about the Gentiles. He says, there's something deep within them that echoes God's yes and no, right or wrong, and God will take that into account. Just keeping the law, though, isn't enough. In Romans 2, 13 through 15, it says, For merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. It is obeying the law that makes us right in his sight. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them, they are doing right. So Paul is instructing and giving awareness to what the Jews might be thinking and what the Gentiles, the God's, how he sees them, the credit, the, the kindness that he shows them. Doing, not hearing, is what makes the difference with God. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, being that he was a good Jew, that he could do all of these things. He knew the law. And then he went on to say, I could talk, I could speak in tongues more than all of you. I could prophesy, I could do all of these things. But if I don't have love, it means absolutely nothing. And so a lot of what Paul is writing here to the Romans, um, in, in uh, Rome, the Jewish Christians, he's telling them, you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul and love your neighbors as yourself. And keeping the law is good, but it's not enough. It is not enough. Comparison. So he's really trying to rescue them from comparing themselves to the non-Jewish. And comparison always leads us in two ways. One way is arrogance. We will compare our goodness to their badness. I'm more right with God because, and you can fill in the blank, or, you're, or you could be judging somebody and you could say, I would never do, and fill in the blank, comparing ourselves with someone else. The other thing that comparison does, it will really make us depressed <laughs> because when we compare ourselves to others, there will always be somebody who is smarter than you, better looking than you, bigger house, more successful, the kids are great. At least that's what Instagram tells us. And so <laughs> comparing ourselves to others really gets us nowhere. When Paul calls out every sin that he mentions in chapter 1, he uses the pronoun they. They do this. God abandoned them to their sinful desires. They, they, them. I actually have a portion of that scripture from chapter 1. Um, they'll put it up. In just a portion that sh shows all the pronouns of they. They knew God, but they wouldn't worship him. They began to think up foolish ideas. Their minds became dark and confused. All of this all goes on and on and on. But in chapter 2... Because, boy, they could jump on that really quick and say, see, I told you, they, they, they're terrible. They're awful. But Paul uses the pronoun you. You have no excuse. Do you think God will judge them and not judge you? 
And I have that as well if you want to put that up. You, you stop judging others. Look at yourself. Is our heart right? We have no idea what, other, what individuals have gone through. We have no idea of their journey, their story, their heartache, their loss, their struggle. And we have no idea how far they've come. So Paul is saying, don't judge them. Look at yourself. Self-righteousness is a far greater deception than unrighteousness because it creates the illusion of goodness that doesn't exist. I'm going to say that again. Self-righteousness is, far greater, is a far greater deception than unrighteousness because it, it creates the illusion of goodness that doesn't actually exist. And I know that God has taken me through the ringers on that. And um, I'm so thankful for that, as difficult as that was. When we look today at Romans chapter 2, we really have to ask the question, who am I? And I know we just, got, we just went through the identity series, and, and we talked about who we are in Christ. But today, today when we ask that question, who am I, there's only one answer. The answer is, I'm a sinner saved by grace. This letter to the Romans is so interesting because Paul, who wrote the letter, was the epitome of judging others. Paul possessed the highest degree of elitism, boastfulness, vengefulness. He describes himself in Philippians chapter 3. He says, I was born into a pure-blooded Jewish family. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. And by the way, Benjamin is the best tribe. And he was really meaning that because Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin was known for its military strength, its cunning and political savvy. The tribe of Benjamin um, had uh, King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Queen Esther was from the tribe of Benjamin. So when he mentions Benjamin, he means I was up there. I was a member of the Pharisees. I demanded the strictest, strictest obedience of the law. I was zealous. I was proud. I was boastful. I harshly persecuted the church. But then he goes on to say this. After he talks about all of his pedigrees, he says this. I thought of all these things, and they were so important. But now I'm saying they are worthless because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. It's his life, it's his, it's his death, it's his resurrection that makes me right standing with God. Not what I've done. It's not the tribe I'm from. It's not family heritage. It's no badges of honor that I've, that I've accumulated. It's because of what Jesus has done for me. I am a sinner saved and redeemed by grace. Paul begins this letter, and this is how he describes himself in Romans chapter 1. He says, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. And remember, he's writing this letter while he is in prison in Corinth. So he's not saying, I'm a prisoner or a slave to the Roman government. I'm not, I'm not a slave to the establishment. I am humbly a slave of Jesus Christ. Romans 1.16, he says, For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. 
It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. In Ephesians, he says, salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. Let's take a closer look at Romans 1, 1 through 3. It says this, you therefore have no excuse. You have passed judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, I want to just pause there because you might be thinking, well, they didn't actually do exactly the same thing. No, they're not doing maybe that same exact sin, but the fact that they're judging is a sin. And so that's what Paul is saying. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Paul, Paul can say, I was that person. I've been there. I've done that. I was proud. I was educated. And I was judgmental. So this chapter in Romans is really calling us to be honest not to point fingers at others and tell and tell them or think those things that they're so terrible but to really understand that we serve a just God and there's a confession in verse 3 it says the very act of judging condemns yourself Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 do not judge others, and you will not be judged. Now, in all the text of Romans chapter 2, I have to say this is my favorite. It's Romans 2, 4. It says this, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? I like this verse because, one, it just recalibrates us. It recalibrates our thinking. Don't you see? Can't you remember how kind and patient and tolerant he's been with you? He's given you time to repent. We have judgmental deja vu because we judge somebody and then we turn around and do the same thing. But somehow we excuse it on, on ourselves. Paul points out that the moralist, the person who's not really bad, and the religious person may presume that the kindness, the tolerance, and the patience of God is, well, you know, I'm better than others, and I deserve that. But his kindness to us is in regard to our past sin. His tolerance is God's kindness to us in regard to our present sin. Confession is so good for the soul because his mercy is new every morning. He's tolerant with us. He, he withholds his judgment to give us time to repent. I think about when he told Noah to build the ark because there was, the world was just evil at the time. And, and um, he said, Noah, I want you to build an ark. But, you know, he gave 120 years before the flood came. That's how tolerant he was, to give them time and opportunity to repent. And then the patience of God is 
is his kindness to us in regard to our future sin. When I think about his kindness, his tolerance or forbearance, his patience, it really should bring me to this humble repentance instead of any attitude of superiority. There's danger in religious pride. One of the dangers is it creates a hard heart. We judge others. Um, what happens, it's like cholesterol to our spiritual life. It clogs our heart so that we don't have empathy or compassion. And it makes, makes us into mean people, that hard heart. A hard heart is brash. We become experts at evaluating everyone else's faults. We become bitter, and we hate people's badness more than we love God's goodness. So that's what religious pride does. Paul is also saying in Romans 2, 5 through 11, but because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible judgment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immorality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile, for there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. The other thing about religious pride, another danger of religious pride, is a, a hypocritical life. This happens when you, we go through life with these pious and righteous ideas, but we don't apply them to our own life. There are two ways to learn. You learn with your heart or you learn with your elbow. The heart says, before I apply this to anyone else, God I give you permission to take this truth, this law, this righteous idea, and apply it to my innermost being. Would you convict me? Would you show me? Would you teach me? Holy Spirit, I give you full access. Show me where I need to be right with you. That's how we learn with our heart. But the elbow says, are you getting this? <laughs> are you listening? So we can either learn with our heart or we can learn with our elbow. <sighs> As I was thinking about this uh, lesson today, I want to show you a picture. This picture was taken December 22nd, 2013. Those are our three oldest grandchildren who are now teenagers. Uh, this was a monumental day for us. The Western novelist Louis L'Amour wrote, There will come a time when you believe that everything is over. That will be the beginning. This day, December 22nd, 
was the beginning of something that God did phenomenal. He did a phenomenal work in our lives. Earlier in that year, April of that year, our lives hit the wall. It was one of the hardest things we'd ever been through. It's very hard to publicly be broken, tired, burned out, and angry. As a result of many sports injuries and also being extremely weary and soul-tired, Ron was dealing with prescription pain medication. It had become a problem. I was angry, I was a control freak, and I was trying to keep it all together. And then we had a child who was far from Jesus, living a very dangerous life. So there was this intense heartache, parental heartache that we were walking through. And we came to the end of ourselves. What began to look like a sabbatical ended up being a nine-month leave of absence. And what could have been the very end of our ministry, we weren't sure we were going to even be able to come back. On the day we came to the end of ourselves, though, that very day we said, okay, we're going to stop. We have to stop. We were made to stop. I'm not going to fool you. It wasn't our choice. Ron wanted to stop, but I was, you know, I was a control freak. I was going to keep going. On that day, when we came to the end of ourself, our kid came home. This child, this young adult was broken. But it was providential. A good friend of ours who was walking alongside us, he said, this is the perfect time. They're broken. You're broken. There's no finger pointing. In those months, we rested. We, re- we were being restored. Ron was recovering from knee replacement surgery. It was really funny because we were still coming and staying in community, even though it was really awkward and very hard. We came as parishioners, not as pastors. And we sat and we listened and we worshiped and we cried. And it was difficult. We had lots of people speaking into our lives. We invited that into our lives, speak to us. But it was really, there were some humorous things in that, in that when Ron was recovering from knee replacement, and like I said, it was very public of what our struggles were, I had people come up to me and say, is Ron still taking drugs? I said, yes, he just had knee replacement surgery. Aspirin's not cutting it. And so... (laughs) But we've got it under control. But our child healed. We were being healed and restored. We needed each other. There were times that we, many, many conversations of repentance between, in our family, healing words. And can I say that as a pastor, it would have been easier to go somewhere else, to disappear We have seen many of our peers who walk through things, and they just were gone. Their church didn't know what happened. They were just gone. 
And if, can I just say this? If you've been hurt by the church, can I say I'm so sorry? Because I know what it feels like. I know what it feels like, and I hope I'm a better person because I've gone through this. I remember one day talking to our mentor, our friend, and I said, his name is Larry. I said, Larry, if we don't come back, the church means nothing. How can we talk about redemption, grace, forgiveness, restoration without modeling it ourselves? Now, I'm happy to report that when we did come back, December 22nd, 2013, we were overwhelmed with love and support. Our ministries for recovery grew, and there was freedom like no other, personal freedom. The fear that I didn't even know I had was gone. Because now I have been openly broken and openly healed. I didn't have to hide anything. I knew it was safe to do that, regardless of what people thought. There was freedom personally and communally in our church. But I don't want to paint a fairy tale ending because not everyone was a fan. We had people who thought we should leave, that we didn't deserve to be here. And we had to learn to walk in grace on both sides of the fence. Romans 2, 11 says, God does not show favoritism. It doesn't matter who you are, the credentials you hold. God is a just God who judges sin. Without exception, he's also faithful and full of grace. In chapter 2, Paul is saying the gospel of the cross is powerful enough to meet everyone who walks in these doors. We as a church, we need to remember who we are, recipients and ambassadors of grace. Earlier in this message, I said, if we don't understand Romans chapter 2, then the church is not a safe place because we cannot be people who are judgmental. And it's hard because, boy, we're sinners. I'm a sinner. It's easy to judge. Hey, it's election year. It's going to be a lot of repentance. I'll tell you. And Paul was never blind to his own condition. He says this in 1 Timothy. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience, even with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. All honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Amen. So why did I show you that picture? Why did I tell you that story? Because I can't think of a better story of coming into a place of believers who are being, you you can be received regardless of the path you led, regardless of where you've been, and that God is a redeemer. 
And we are ambassadors of grace. We are recipients of grace. We are who we are, are sinners saved by grace. And so as we close this morning, um, there's going to be worship or there's going to be prayer people up here. And actually, if if you're here to be one of those, would you please make your way up to the front? If you, I've really been thinking about this as I was preparing today, that if you have been hurt by the church, God wants to heal those hearts. He wants to mend those hearts. If you have been judged and maybe judged unfairly, um, then be healed of that. If you've been one to judge, Ask the Lord to, to forgive you of that. But this morning, we, um, we're going to close with a word of prayer. But would you stand with me and, and, um, and do, please feel free. Make your way up for prayer, whatever it is. If you don't know Jesus, know Jesus because <laughs> we need him. He's so good. He's so merciful. He's so kind. He's so faithful. And he's tolerant, and he's kind, and he's patient with us. So let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness and your mercy. And thank you that your mercy is new every morning. Holy Spirit, we invite you. Would you show us where our hearts need to be corrected, to be healed, to be more like you? In your precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbyfoursquare.com.